As editor of The Garden magazine, I'm fortunate enough to be able to spend time in some of the most beautiful gardens across the country. I always leave them feeling more at peace, a bit happier. It reminds me of being in my own garden and the joy that gives me. It's always quite tricky to work out why you love gardening so much, and for me there are just so many reasons. One of them is about being outside, in the environment, in tune with the weather, with the seasons, wind and rain. You name it, I want to be outside in it, and that connection for me is vital. Welcome to the Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young. In this programme, I want to take you to meet the people behind the stories in our monthly publication for RHS members. We'll start today on a slightly different note, and this feels particularly timely at this moment with so much uncertainty and concern around the world. But did you know the weeding and planting can potentially boost your immunity? and that a healthy dose of gardening can be as beneficial to your body as taking vitamins? Well, these are just some of the many fascinating insights provided by Your Wellbeing Garden, a new book from the RHS. I've been really lucky to be involved with the book from the very beginning, when we sat down with our publishing colleagues at DK to come up with a book that has brought together the benefits of gardening and wellbeing with the science and the knowledge behind it. We wanted to show people how important gardening and plants are, both to us and to the planet. For me, the most important part of the book is the fact that we can prove once and for all what so many of us think, that gardening is good for you. We know we've got the science, we know we've got the design, we've brought it together, and we can prove that why we should all be getting outside and get gardening. To find out more about the book, I spoke with Alistair Griffiths, one of the authors. I think we're living in a fast-changing world, particularly more people are living in cities, more people live with busy, stressful lifestyles. And I think that the evidence on particularly nature and well-being has increased significantly over the last 20 years. And more recently, the work that the RHS and others are doing on cultivated landscapes and gardening and well-being is supporting these findings. And I think with the way that the National Health Service is sort of bursting at the breaches, we need to look for other ways as a preventative way of healthcare and perhaps a preventative natural health care system amongst others is one of the solutions. So we worked together very closely on this book but why did you feel it was important for the RHS to publish this book and to publish it now? Well I mean the King's Fund produced a report on gardening and health and I think one of its calls was that there wasn't really a complete sort of assimilation or bringing together of the current information that's out there and I looked online and I looked on the shelves and there didn't really seem to be a book that could really pull it all together and and give us ideas around that. I think some of the other things that I was concerned about was this element of plant blindness and more and more people seem to be becoming disconnected with nature. The scientific evidence linked to that about the lack of nature leads to a term called nature deficit disorder, which means, you know, the less nature that we have has a direct impact on how we have the health. And then having people forget about this, literally, we've kind of forgot that, you know, we're animals Nature is our habitat. Plants play a massive role in that. Yet in cities, we seem to be removing our habitat, which 
isn't really great for our health. So returning to the book, this is called Your Wellbeing Garden. It's more than 220-odd pages of a huge amount of information. For those people who haven't seen it, can you give us a quick overview of the, the way it feels, the way it reads and what's in it? Yeah, I mean, we worked in collaboration with um, some great people. I mean, Annie Gatti, Zia Alloway, and the garden designer, Matt Keatley. Plus, to be honest, the whole of the RHS scientific team got involved in this. And of course, there was you as well, Chris. So (laughs) I think it was a great collaboration. And I think it was interesting fusing that garden design and science But, you know, what's key with things like RHS science and what we're doing is that we turn those into practical examples of how, you know, we can use this knowledge and how we can give examples of how people can grow for your own well-being or for their well-being. Because I think what was interesting in when we worked on the book was actually the way with our colleagues at DK as well, the book publisher, that actually we broke it down into four sections, a protective garden, healing garden, sustainable garden and nourishing garden. And in a way, I guess that wasn't in your head originally, was it? Because you were dealing with a lot of the science and the facts and the research, but trying to bring it together to make it relatable and relevant for people reading it. Yeah, and again, I think this is, you know, it was literally me and Annie Gatti and Zia and Matt talking together in a room about how can we get this across. And they had a brilliant way of translating this stuff into a digestible format because science is often quite complicated to get across. The evidence is there, but, you know, the fact that they turned up with the protective garden and then you've got pollution capture, the healing garden, rebooting your brain, the nourishing garden, maximised food nutrition, the sustainable garden, making a garden a no-flood zone. It was all, you know, relatable to anyone, and I think that's just fab how they did that. One of the really interesting things for me was this combination of design of planting and science in the book and the fact that we got some real core RHS science in there, like the way that plants can keep your building cooler in the summer and be warmer in the winter, or the fact that actually hedges can act as a bit of a pollution barrier. This must have been really exciting for you as a scientist with lots of research with your extensive team doing this, but actually seeing it printed in, in a more palatable format than maybe a peer-reviewed paper. Yeah, and I think that was it. We wanted a book that reached the masses because this stuff is really important. We need to get people to realise that gardens, gardening and gardeners or those that grow have a massive role to play in relation to this and we want to provide them with the best information in an understandable format as quickly as we can. And as we learn, we keep sharing that knowledge. And I think it wasn't really pulled together anywhere else. So I'm hoping for the first time, this is sort of a start of saying, this is where we are, take action. These are the things that you can do. And this is what we know at the moment. Was there anything, I know one isn't meant to have a favourite child or a favourite parent, but was there any section in the book that really sort of caught your eye or you thought, wow, that's really good or you hadn't quite considered that before? I think the whole thing around rebooting your brain and how bringing in the world of sociology and environmental psychology on theories around how we restore the brain through that. So, for example, the elements of stress reduction theory, which have been around since the 80s, but we perhaps haven't embraced them in the garden world we have in nature and the attention restoration theory I think those are really quite exciting and I think the other aspect is around this whole thing around the role of plants and noise reduction how does different types of plants within a garden or how do you garden to perhaps minimize noise which I think is going to be a big issue going forward so things like noise reduction or particulates capture on, on leaves, is this all pretty novel research or, again, is this trying to assimilate what's out there? 
I think it's novel research. So certainly one of my scientists, Tiana Blanuza, has been working on this for quite a number of years. And we're just beginning to understand which plants have the different types of what we call character traits. So whether a leaf is hairy, will it capture more pollution than one that's scaly? You know, we've got some lists of plants now that have these characters. But again, this is the exciting thing about the research. We're going to start to look at more and more of these plants. We have some examples, but we've got to look at more plants and look at what are the characters that really do this uh, most effectively. It's incredibly exciting, isn't it? Because for those of us in the gardening world, whether we're just starting out or been doing it for a while, this is stuff that we innately know or feel. But if we can have the science to prove all of this, the future for horticulture and gardening is so exciting. Yeah, I mean, and I think, you know, the role of horticulture and gardening in resolving some quite significant government challenges around things like climate change, around the well-being, I'm not saying it's the silver bullet, but it does have some solutions around these areas of flooding, of, you know, all these challenges. And I think what the book does is it tries to pull together all those bits from my team and other people's work in a digestible format that DK and and the other writers have helped with into something that, also leads to practical advice that can be implemented in your garden right now. You can get the book today. Just visit rhsshop.co.uk. This month's issue is full of lots of great writing and great photography. And there's quite a few highlights for me to include. We've gone rather watery in this issue, with a frog on the cover, a step-by-step photography on how to make a mini garden pond, a small feature on those amazing creatures, pond skaters, and a four-page article by our resident RHS wildlife expert, Helen Bostock, who shows how she's changed her home pond into a haven for wildlife. One of the plants I remember from my childhood is Pheasant's Eye Narcissus. It was really the epitome of the spring garden when I was younger. My father used to leave some of our grass to grow long, and these lovely daffs would pop up through it. I actually grow the cultivar capability at home, and that's starting to bulk up quite nicely. We've got a great feature to help people shortcut all those grow-your-own dilemmas. Why spend hours reading back issues of The Garden magazine or searching the RHS website looking for the best selections? Instead, read this article, which asks six experts about the very best veg to grow, from squash to lettuce, beetroot to pak choy. And a quick one for the most amazing Visual Splendour Award this issue, and it goes to Arundel Castle in West Sussex. The eye-popping photography from Marianne Majerus and the article by Bunny Guinness are a visual overload on how to use tulips to the fore and how to get the most lively and exciting amount of colour into your garden, even if you don't live in a castle. While we've talked about gardening as being the perfect tonic to our fast-paced lives, another thing that I find helps take the edge off things is gin. Full of botanicals, you could say it's the gardener's drink of choice, and that's reflected in an article by Naomi Slade. It's about bringing gin to life, using plants from our own gardens to spice up a classic spirit. In it, Naomi visited Warner's, a distillery that specialises in flavoured gins to discover the best possible botanic combinations. I wanted to know where this fascination began. I've been interested in writing an article about gin for years. When I heard about Warner's Gin, they sounded just amazing. They're setting up these very exciting four and a half acres or so of gardens. They're not botanical gardens per se, but they are gardens in which you grow gin botanicals. So they've got lavender, they've got roses, and they've got lemon balm. They've put in this wonderful orchard recently of elderflowers. I 
not a big fan of pink gin, but I absolutely love slow gin, and I've made it before. But what they have is teams of people who are very, very keen on their slow gin who go around picking their slows for them in exchange for a bottle of the good stuff. What I didn't realise is you start off with a really, really strong gin or a strong grain spirit that you're going to turn into gin, something like a wheat spirit. And then you put it into the still with water, so you take it down to, say, 60%. And the whole process is a balance of time and heat. The still's surrounded by water so it doesn't go over 100 degrees. And then you put all the delicious flavourings into the still and just keep gently heating it for four, five, six, seven hours until the whole process is complete. The other thing that I didn't realise is that when the gin comes out, when it actually is it's distillate, it's really strong. So it comes out again at about you know, 90%. So what you actually get in your bottle is normally cut with water down to a sensible drink. It's the same rationale by how you get a whiskey, which is something stonking like 50%. But normally, most sensible drinkers like their gins and their whiskies around about 40% proof. One of the other really exciting things is the provenance of juniper berries. So that on the farm they're growing juniper and they have replanted some trees that they had at RHS Chelsea in one of their show gardens a couple of years ago. But there isn't enough sunshine and heat in the UK to produce gin-quality juniper berries. So I said, well, why are you importing these dry botanicals? But apparently you get more fragrant, more aromatic juniper as you go further south across Europe. And what they tend to do is use juniper sourced from Macedonia, which has a spicy, sweet sort of quality to it. But it varies from country to country and latitude to latitude. So if you were to source your juniper from Italy, for example, you'd end up with a much sweeter berry. And I thought that was fascinating. Warners make pink gins, fruit gins, and rather than using flavourings and essences, they actually cut their gin down to 40% ABV using fruit juice. And they have a claim to fame as the people who introduced rhubarb gin as their own wonderful creation. And last year, I believe the stat is something like 400 tonnes of rhubarb to create enough juice to cut their gins by about 30%. Radio Heaven. So if you want to macerate your gin at home and create that flavour, there are lots of things you can put in, like herbs. There's lemon balm, lemon verbena. But there's also lavender, roses. Pick a lovely, lovely fragrant rose. And the thing about they do this wonderful strawberry and rose gin, which is just so delicate and sweet. It's just the most wonderful wonderful summer drink. So you can take a gin, a very good quality London dry gin, and then macerate your roses and your strawberries. And if you were, for example, to pick a, a lovely wild strawberry or something very fragrant, you get a really exciting personalised drink. And the thing to do is to experiment. Look in the garden. I mean, it's important, obviously, that the plants that you use are edible. But you could, for example, put in borage flowers. You could put in sage. You could put in chamomile. One of the exciting things they'd use is dandelion roots. And they're farmed and foraged gin, which is exciting because it contains things like um, bee pollen, but also toasted apple wood. And they've got a spring gin flavour, which has apple flowers in. So if it's there and it's in the garden, you can very much play with it and see what you can create. 
Well, the thing about gin is that legally to be called gin, as I say in my article, it has to have juniper as the dominant flavour. You can have coriander seed, you can have angelica root and all sorts of other things. So if you are going to make gin at home, then in many ways starting with a good quality, very strong London dry gin, because of course if you're going to add fruit juices, then that will dilute the alcohol. But if you want to start from absolute scratch, then in many ways any neutral grain spirit would do the job. So if you want to add to vodka, your botanicals, your juniper, your coriander and citrus and so on, then that would work equally well. You just need to soak them for a reasonable length of time. But pick a neutral spirit of choice and, and get macerating. And of course these flavoured gins really do lend themselves to modern cocktails. And even if you don't have the time or the desire to create your own gin, what you can do is make wonderful, wonderful cocktails. And actually, because you taste with your nose as well as with your mouth, you can add flavoured garnishes. So to the lemon balm gin, you could add sprigs of lemon balm. To the farmed and forage gin, you might add a little bit of apple mint. Some rosemary. Rosemary is wonderful and incredibly aromatic. So bringing fresh herbs into the drinking experience and fresh flowers too of course roses marigolds borage those sorts of things can really add to the experience even after you've taken it out of the bottle and put it in a glass hearing from naomi has got me thinking about how i could use my garden plants in other creative ways even though I'm normally an ale man, the current Mrs. Young has always poured a delicious G&T. They were the backdrop of our time when we started going out. And look what happened. Four house moves later, one cat, one dog, ten chickens, oh, and two children. We're still together and we're still drinking G&T. Recently, we went together to a gin-making and tasting day down in Devon. It was great, not only because, um, from what I can remember, it was good fun having a drink of all those G&Ts, but also to understand the range of botanicals you can add to the base. I've always loved gins that are slightly more woody, with a broader and more savoury flavour. And in our tasting day, we added some garden plants such as thyme, cardamom, oak bark and even berberis. I wouldn't recommend doing all this at home, but it was a great day and really fascinating to understand how you can embellish and make gin even more delicious. As well as being editor of The Garden, I look after all the publishing from the RHS, including some of the other magazines. And The Plant Review is one of these. It's a quarterly publication for plant lovers to really get into the nitty-gritty, from exciting new plant discoveries to the mechanics of why plant names sometimes change. This season's edition is no exception. James Armitage is the editor, and he began our chat by telling me about what to expect in the latest issue. For an early spring issue, it's very bulb-orientated, as you might expect, and we feature big on snowdrops. And I always think that snowdrops are just the perfect plant person's plant. They have a sort of purity and poise and simplicity, but ultimately loads of variety. The ones we feature in March are those with yellow markings, which are really quite a new thing and retailing for vast amounts of money on eBay and elsewhere. And they are stunning things, really. And we've had Jim Olmond writing about them. He's an expert and picks out the best. But what I think is really interesting about snowdrops at the moment is we've had this sort of idea about snowdrop 
collectors and galanthophiles sort of fossicking around churchyards and looking for minute variants. But now people are really breeding them properly. And if I were a betting man, which thank heavens I'm not, um, <laughs> uh, but if I was, I would place money on there being some really exciting snowdrops coming out in the next 10 or 15 years. So I think this article sets uh, the groundwork for exciting things to come. We also feature Roy Lancaster, and he's always a terrifically entertaining mm, writer about his time in Sichuan. And I'm really keen to get these sort of eminent figures from horticulture who are the last, in a way, of the great plant hunters. Mm, mm. And, you know, Sichuan is just this incredible paradise for plants. There's 10,000 species there. It's twice the size of the UK compared to our poultry 1,500 species. More than 5% of them are found there and nowhere else in the world. And he just had a lovely time in the early 1990s <laughs> finding these incredible plants. And now, a tough gig for 20, 25 years later, he's told us all about them. But just seriously on that point, I mean, the Plant Review is there to celebrate the best knowledge in the world. So this is something that you're really wanting to bring through, is it, about these personal journeys? It is. I mean, I think in the world of plants, there's room for everything. There's room for rather technical stuff and there's room for delightful stories about people. And in the March issue, we've got a couple of examples of that. Princess Greta Sturds's garden at La Vesta Reval in, in Normandy, France. And horticulture, if it does one thing well, it does strong <laughs> women well. And she was just such a person, you know, she had, I am going to create this garden and that's that. And she did. And it's the one, one of those stunning woodland gardens in the world. So that's really a sort of a story about a person and her plants. But at the other end of the spectrum, we have Professor Clive stays writing about the molecular revolution in, in plant classification. And I think that's a mixture of stuff that actually you don't find in any other publication in the world. And we're able to pull it off, I like to think, in our, in well, our stylish are. way. <laughs> well, of course, there's a lot of style that goes into it. But And also, you've always talked about a sort of that sweet shop of ideas, haven't you? And yeah. It certainly sounds like it on that issue. The other article, which I know that you have done in there, has really been about Romanian plants. And I think this was really interesting because of its relevance to climate change in our environment. Uh, that's right. I, I mean, I think gardeners, more than anyone, are well-placed to attest that our climate is changing. You know, they're watchers of the seasons and they're alert to every fluctuation in the routine of their plants. And they will tell you that, you know, gardening isn't what it was 30 years ago. And the trajectory of climate change isn't a straight line. It's, there seems to be lots of turbulence along the way. But the idea seems to be that our summers are going to become drier and we need to look for the plants to equip ourselves for this. So Henrik Schoeman and James Hitchmer have been out to the steppe habitats of Romania finding amazing either drought-tolerant variants of things we've already got or entirely new species, which will become fixtures of our gardens and particularly our urban landscaping in years to come. And I think that's a really exciting idea. Absolutely. It sounds like... We're going to be underlining and putting lots of sticky notes in that magazine to learn from. For those people who don't know what the plant review is or a bit of its history and background, what are we trying to do with it? Well, it was always from its inception somewhere where you could just write enthusiastically about plants and to a certain extent catalogue plants, but I think at its heart celebrate plants and it can range from little tiny notes to whole, treaties of whole genera. But what we're trying to do is just communicate that there's an awful lot of information about plants that needs to get out there for mm. a start and you, you don't always find on the internet the stuff locked up in people's heads and they don't put it out there in a structured way the way you get in the magazine but we just want people to find out about the plants that they never knew they had to grow really that um there's this stuff out there which if if they knew about it by reading the magazine they would drool and, and not on the magazine though 
Metaphor, I'm not precious. <laughs> <laughs> they can always buy another copy. I think the thing that really strikes me when you speak like that is, in a way, the trusted source of what the plant review is, because there is just so much information. There's so many Facebook groups or Twitter accounts or online sharing of information. But actually, you do need to come back to that trusted source of it's been checked, it's got an authoritative tone, but that actually anybody can read it yeah. if you've got a passion for plants. But you can trust the information. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. Even if you might disagree sometimes with some element of it, but the person who's writing it is always, uh, you know, an eminently respectable person, an expert in their field. And if it makes you feel nothing else, it will make you feel passionate one way or another. So in the in the March issue, we start on a, a series of interview articles and we interview Yanis Ruxans and he's a force of nature. You wouldn't agree with everything he says, but you will be moved by it one way or another. One of the things we've wanted to work on in the plant review is to continue its authority, its trust, but also make it a bit more human and a bit more fun or interesting in parts. There are just so many stories, so many anecdotes and so many nuggets of information that people in the gardening and horticultural world want to share. You can subscribe to the plant review on our website. Plus, if you want to indulge yourself further on the topics covered in this episode, you can visit rhs.org.uk forward slash the garden podcast. Clearly times are changing and the country is going through a really tricky situation at the moment. But rest assured, the RHS is here for you. So is this podcast and so is the next podcast for our May issue. There'll be loads in it, from practical things to do as we spend more time at home, to appreciating nasturtiums, looking at Cornus Cusa, and knowing more about RHS bursaries. Until then, from me, Chris Young, thanks for listening. <laughs>